Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And before we go any further, I would like to say a special hello to everyone who is listening to us right now while in the bathroom. Yes, this, this goes out to you. Mm-hmm. And while you are in the bathroom, I'd like you to ponder for a moment the way that you are using the toilet Yeah, and what it means mm-hmm. socially. I bet you never thought about that before. No. But we're here to tell you what it means. And it means a lot. Public restrooms, especially, are loaded with gender politics and racial politics. Right. Exactly. And we're not even, we're not, we're not messing around here. Okay. All right. I'm a little tongue in cheek. <laughs> But seriously, uh, <laughs> toilets and public restrooms have a surprisingly rich history of controversy in terms of access. Right. I mean, first of all, women were denied public restrooms mm-hmm. for an absurdly long period of time. Well, it's because we didn't leave the house. That's true. We were barefoot and pregnant and baking, I'm sure. <laughs> right. Tending to our gardens and whatnot. Shuffling to the outhouse every now and then. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, you know, once once there are public restrooms, there's an issue of equality. Mm-hmm. Because I know that you've been at a ball game or a bar or something where you've had to wait in line for the bathroom for a significant period of time while, while the guys just breeze in and out. I remember going to a Braves game last year and waiting, <laughs> waiting in line for the bathroom for 20 minutes. Did you make it? I barely made it. You could hear all these women uttering, like, relief, like, oh, God, yes. Well, that's why you find so much camaraderie in the bathroom line yeah. for, for the women's restroom, because you're all in this this horrible situation together, having to hold your bowels. Yeah. Um, but let's not, let's not get too ahead of ourselves, because the thing is, you're talking about being at a Braves game and having to wait for a bathroom. But the thing is, Caroline, here in... The United States, in the Western world, we are taking our bathrooms for granted big time. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a huge problem. Access to sanitation facilities, especially for women, is a huge problem in developing countries. Um, we've touched on this before in the podcast, how toilet access is um, a problem for schoolgirls in particular in rural areas uh, because it prevents them from attending school during their periods. If they don't have access to a toilet, they have to stay home and that only keeps them home even longer. You have a lot of areas um, in Africa as well. The Amnesty International has worked hard to try and get more uh, sanitation facilities in there. But even in countries like China and India, access to toilets is still a huge problem. Um, this is coming from a couple of articles in The Economist magazine. In India, around three 330 million women lack access to toilets, and because of that, they have to wait until night to go out to the bathroom, risking rape, kidnapping, and snake bites. Right. That's dangerous. Yeah. Um, but in, in China, which I think of as a pretty, <laughs> pretty developed modern country, according to that World Health Organization report from 2010, it estimated that 45% of Chinese people lack access to improved sanitation facilities, which contributes to the risk of disease. Right. And that makes sense because there are still so many large pockets of 
rural areas in China. But even in Beijing, there has been um, a, a protest movement, a small, kind of more underground protest movement to get more toilets in urban areas. Because as people are traveling around, getting from home to job and back again, these buses will stop off and everyone will get out of the bus to use the public restroom. And there are the same number of toilets for men and women. And because of that, you know, women don't, can't go to the bathroom because right. all the stalls are taken up. And a lot of times um, they mention how a lot of the sanitation workers are women. So the women are cleaning a bathroom, using up one stall, eliminating another, you know, another toilet for use. Yeah. And activists have had it. Activists in China are tired of having to wait in line for the bathroom well, like like I was at the Braves game, while mm-hmm. men just breeze in and out. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just an inconvenience. They're saying that it's a gender equality issue. And Li Tingting, a 22-year-old student, has led the Occupy Men's Toilet movement, uh, during which she and several activists took over a men's restroom near a park, allowing women to use the empty stalls for three minutes at a time before they would wave the men back in for ten minutes. And in this way, they, you know, were hoping to raise awareness and bring attention to the fact that women need more restroom space. Now, one thing that I did not realize is that a number of countries, um, including the U.S. on the state level, have what are referred to as potty parity laws, essentially laws stating you must have an equal number of bathrooms for men and for women. And why in the United States would we need something like that? Oh, well, instances like in West Virginia that barred women from jury service until 1956 because the courthouses lacked female toilets. Oh, and it's not just it's not just in states. Let's talk about the U.S. Capitol, uh, because the Capitol building did not have a female bathroom for female senators until 1992. And because of that, they would have to run downstairs and use the tourist restroom and then run back upstairs, whereas male senators had their own designated special private bathroom. Exactly. So bathrooms were used as an excuse to keep women out of certain activities. Yeah. Hope you can't miss your vote because you're waiting (laughs) in the line for the bathroom. Right. Um, But this potty parody, I mean, it's saying one-to-one. It's saying men and women need equal bathrooms. Mm -hmm. But... One-to-one is not an equal opportunity ratio. Because our time in the bathroom, let's face it, folks, it is not one-to-one. Right. Uh, A 1988 study from Virginia Tech measured how long it takes men and women to use the bathroom. It found that women take an average of three minutes to, quote, go in, go, and go out, whereas men are in and out in 83.6 seconds, about half the time. Now, I tweeted this little factoid Uh uh, before we came in to record uh, and received a number of interesting replies, one of which was from a woman who, I guess she didn't notice that I had said public restroom because she was like, wait a minute, uh-uh, no, my husband takes a really <laughs> long time in the bathroom. But no, we're talking about out in public, guys go in, go out, and usually it takes women on average twice as long. Okay, so it's an issue of time and it's an issue of space. This is coming from The Economist. Uh, they quoted George Washington University law professor John Banzoff, who told them that sanitary facilities are assigned by area. Mm-hmm. Like we were saying, but up to 12 urinals can fit into a space that can hold only three to four sit down toilets. 
So women either need more space or we need more solutions. And as we'll go into in more detail, the design of women's bathroom stalls has not changed much since the 1850s. Right. There has not been a ton of innovation, even though, as we'll also discuss, female urinals, that's right, female urinals are one proposed solution. But let's get back to this issue of access and talk for a moment about some stuff that's been going on more on college campuses and um, trans students on college campuses who want unisex bathrooms. Right. Uh, Catherine Anthony, an architecture professor, uh, said in that Economist article that one solution is to make more bathrooms unisex. She says either there are no lines or everyone has to wait. And she says that it also makes life easier for transgender people who have to worry about making a public choice and being ridiculed. All right, and this is coming from the paper Restroom Revolution, Unisex Toilets and Campus Politics by Olga Gershenson. And she writes that traditional sex-segregated public restrooms bring transgender people routine risk of being insulted, mocked, attacked, and even arrested. So again, we're taking for granted a lot of times access to public bathrooms, not just by virtue of living in the U.S. where the access usually is um, more abundant, but also by virtue of being cisgender, heterosexual, identified females who can just, you know, we see the lady sign and we know right where to walk. That's not the same situation for a transgender person. And this is coming from the Transgender Law and Policy Institute that listed a lot of problems that transgender high school students face in particular. And they found that often transgender and gender nonconforming students don't feel safe in either the men's or the women's restroom because of the uh, danger of harassment. Um, and they found that in a transgender focus group, the lack of safe bathrooms is the biggest problem that gender nonconforming students face. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of gender scholars will point out that when you really think about it, the way that bathrooms are segregated between men's and women's, it's also a way of, um, I guess, making our private parts even more private. Yes, and the idea of gender gender neutral locker rooms was actually suggested by transgender students at Grinnell College in Iowa. They'd already had uh, gender neutral dorm options for three years, but last year added gender neutral locker rooms at the encouragement of students. Yeah, especially among private um, colleges and universities in the U.S., gender neutral dorms have become more common. I think there the USA Today article. Uh, cited 54 college campuses that already have those. Um, but in that Restroom Revolution article that I mentioned by Olga Gershenson, um, she talks a lot about the 2001 protest movement that started at University of Massachusetts at Amherst by a student group called Restroom Revolution that was lobbying for transgender-friendly unisex bathrooms. And they ran into not only opposition from other students students on campus, um, and even some gay organizations who said, you're just trying to get attention. This is bathrooms. Just You've been going to the bathroom. Just keep going to the same bathroom that you went to. No big deal. Um, but when they went and actually talked to the vice chancellor about getting um, unisex bathrooms in there, I thought it was interesting that the Massachusetts Architectural Code stated that a bathroom had to be designated by gender. And I wonder, that was in 2001, and I wonder if some of those codes are changing because I went back and checked. And the campus does now have gender-neutral bathrooms in a lot of the dorms now. So while potty politics has become a platform for... um, 
transgender rights. The gender issues go a long way back to when the first public conveniences, as they were called, were invented and installed in London. And like you mentioned earlier, Caroline, they were restricted to men only. Women could not use them. They did not have women in mind when they first invented public restrooms. Right, because we don't leave the house. Yeah. Um, but the, the first large scale public bathrooms were featured at London's Great Exhibition of 1851. And it was the first time that people saw this set up on a, on a large scale and thought, okay, this is how it works. And they thought it worked so well that it, ha- it hasn't changed. Right. The whole design of like going into a stall and locking the door and sitting down on a toilet. Right. Barbara Penner, who is an architectural lecturer at the University College of London, um, talks about how the model of ladies room that was established at that great exhibition by George Jennings that came with a private stall with a water closet lock and door is still so dominant it has not been seriously rethought in the last 150 years. Yeah. Well, back then it was just good that they got toilets. Because uh, public health concerns back in the 19th century led to the provision of public toilets, but the majority, like we said, were for men only. And women immediately started fighting this because, you know, sometimes they did have to be out of the house (laughs) for whatever reason. Um, The Ladies Sanitary Association and members of the public in England campaigned for women's toilets in high traffic areas. And one was going to be installed in 1900. But this giant brouhaha broke out and people were calling it an abomination. I I don't want it anywhere near my house. Mm -hmm. That's filthy and inappropriate. So the project was abandoned. There was not a public women's bathroom in that area of London until 1905. Yeah, it was sort of a, a twofold protest against it. One being the, the impropriety of women urinating and possibly defecating. Yeah, women don't do that. No. But doing it in public, no less, Caroline, then everyone would know that yes, indeed, yes, indeed, yes, indeed, women do poop. Um, so they, they didn't like the idea of, of women using the bathroom in public. And then also this potential interaction of the women who would leave to be shopping, the more leisurely upper class women who would be shopping, who might interact with lower class factory girls and flower girls. But in order to keep the, the class divide, they charged a penny to use this public bathroom. But uh, there was a cheaper option. There was a cheaper option. In 1898, a female urinette was installed in one London public loo, and it only cost a half penny. And instead of it being a stall with a door that you lock, they had a curtain, and it was a, it was a stand-up operation, which was pretty handy because right. Victorian underwear was open at the crotch. As we have discussed before in the podcast. Yeah, Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria. I wonder if she ever used one. Certainly not. Certainly not. Um, but it's it's been a hard transition, I think, to try to convince women to use urinals or urinettes made specifically for them. I think there's definitely a prevailing attitude that it's weird or immodest or improper. Well, Barbara Penner, who was that that toilet scholar that I mentioned from University College of London, uh, has got her hands on some model urinettes that that or they were essentially like siphons that women could use to to get the urine from out <laughs> out of them to the toilet without spraying everywhere. Women out there, you know what I'm I'm talking about. It's not the easiest to pee while standing up. Yeah, I I used to work in an office where someone would spray all over the seat 
And I think that individual could have benefited from a urinette. Yeah, they were, um, a lot of times they were just shaped like a funnel, but there was one from the mid 1800s. It was this glass blown urinette that was shaped like, um, a penis. I mean, I guess they were, they figured, hey, well, guys use this to, to pee, so let's this ma- could work for the women. <laughs> let's maintain this theme. <laughs> but again, the female urinette never really caught on. Although, fun fact, in 1950 and 1973, the American Standard Toilet Company tried again to produce a female urinal, but it didn't really catch on so much. No, it still hasn't. And the most recent that I've read about it, there was an article in Cabinet Magazine by Barbara Penner who you mentioned before, uh, talking about female urinals at, at the Glastonbury Music Festival mm-hmm. and that they used pee mates. These little, like, cardboard things you would, like, stick, I guess, stick them in your underwear yeah. and use to direct the stream of urine. It's basically like a, a urine funnel. Um, yeah. I've also, I think there's also a pee she mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, you can see, you'll see them sometimes more at, at festivals. But uh, I've I've never seen one in person. I haven't either. I, I there was one quote where the where a girl at Glastonbury said that she really liked the idea and it was pretty handy because you didn't have to go in one of those filthy porta potties, mm-hmm. but that it was a little hard to use when you've been drinking at a music festival. So understandable. Be careful. But talking about the the gender politics of the bathroom and going to the bathroom, we would be remiss to not mention this quote from The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, written in uh, 1949, because she believed that teaching little girls to squat and urinate constituted, quote, the most striking sexual differentiation of their childhood. And in by by teaching little girls to squat when using the bathroom, it was teaching them to to hide themselves and that it was a shameful and inconvenient procedure. And the erect position was reserved for men alone. Right. Uh, well, you mentioned these ladies before, Olga Gershenson and Barbara Penner. In their introduction to the book, Ladies and Gents, Public Toilets and Gender, they wrote that public bathrooms are the last openly sex-segregated spaces and the spaces that we expect to be sex-segregated. And we go into them knowing that the guys next door are probably going to be standing up and we're probably going to be sitting down. And so it really, they say, reflects and shapes the binary division of men and women, as well as, quote, proper relationships between people of the same sex. And which is why when you think about it in all of those terms, why it makes sense that these transgender students in particular are so adamant about getting safer unisex spaces to where you can you can do away with all those gendered trappings. And while we've talked a lot about gender in this episode, we also have to address race because during the civil rights movement in the U.S., bathrooms were one of the last places to be desegregated. For listeners out there who have seen or read The Help, one of the plot lines revolves around how this completely racist white woman um, does not want her black maid to use the bathroom because of these bogus beliefs about race-specific diseases. Um, and these uh, desegregation cases about regarding bathrooms went on as late as 1977. There was a case, James V. Stockham, that was still hashing out uh, segregation of public bathrooms in, in workplaces, especially. So we talked about gender. We've talked about race. Who knew that the potty politics of public restrooms, I can't say that five times fast, but who knew that the potty politics of public restrooms was so so complicated. Right. I had never 
uh, considered myself um, at a disadvantage as far as the bathroom goes, other than, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to cross my legs and pray that I get into a stall really fast. I hadn't thought of it as a equality issue, but the fact that women don't have the space that they need to get to the bathroom in time. Hundreds of millions of women, and I'm sure men, too, but... It, this is this is an issue that is still very much uh, needs to be solved on a global level and right. down to you know uh, rights for for transgender people as well. Exactly. So I think we can flush this episode. Oh, oh. I had to I had to do. Yeah. I mean, do you have any toilet pun you want to get out before we close things up? <laughs> I think I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Okay. Let's right. just wipe this one off the books. There you go. Okay, so if if any listeners out there have any any toilet any clean toilet puns to send our way, or um, any experiences with bathrooms, have you thought about bathrooms on this level? I know it might have at first seemed absurd to talk about potty politics because you're referring to a toilet as a potty and rhyming it with politics. And have you ever had a bathroom conflict? Because I remember, I a guy actually yelled at me. I was at a restaurant that had, it's, it's two bathrooms used to be unisex, and they had recently changed it to women and men. And the women's line was ridiculous, so I just went in the men's men's room. It was a single stall. I've I mean, done that. Yeah, and I came out, and this guy started literally cussing me out. I was like, really, dude? You should tell him about the 330 million women in India who don't have potties. Yeah. So with that, send us your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com is our email address. And I've got one here from Marcy, and this is in reference to our recent episode on age gaps in relationships. She writes, I happen to be in a long-distance relationship with someone 27 years older than myself. Though most of our communication is through talking on the phone, what's amazing is that we can talk for hours every week even though we don't actually get to do much together. I don't feel as if age difference affects our relationship, except that I find guys my age are looking for someone who is outgoing and exciting, as I've seen on many online dating profiles, and older men tend to be happier than younger men if someone is simply able to hold an intelligent conversation. My long-distance relationship and I are actually close in the same life stages in many ways since we're both mature, responsible adults and we can discuss things that many less stable people don't have in common with us, like taking care of a house. But more than anything, we are both very curious people and enjoy sharing information. And by the way, we buck the statistics in that we both have advanced degrees and decent jobs. So thanks for that, Marcy. Excellent. I have a very serious email here. Uh, David has a bone to pick. Yes, he does. This is coming from our airbrushing episode. More like a nip to pick. (laughs) He says, how could you do an episode on airbrushing without mentioning Marky Mark's third nipple? It was discreetly airbrushed out of all of his underwear modeling shots. He should be proud to carry an extra nipple like Anne Boleyn or the man with the golden gun. Yeah, I did not realize that, that Mark Wahlberg, a.k.a. Marky Mark, had a third nipple. I was dubious, <laughs> I had, I had but, heard but thankfully he sent us a link and um, th- th- to, to an interview with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell. And Mark Wahlberg uh, confirms that, yes, indeed, he has a third nipple. Is and it, it like is, the size of a regular nipple? No, he says it's about the size of an infant's nipple. It's like an und- small, undeveloped nipple, but I it's wonder, there. I wonder if it's along his milk line. Milk Ridge? On the Milk Ridge. Yeah. That's right. So, <laughs> two episodes of one. Airbrushing, men and nipples, tying it all together. Yeah. 
So thanks to everyone who has shared so much esoteric knowledge, like third nipples of celebrities with us. Momstuff at discovery.com is the address you can send your thoughts to. You can also find us on Facebook, leave us a comment there, or you can tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And of course, you can find us during the week at our home website, howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you